son was in college, we uh, went over on a, I think a Wednesday night, Should would have either been Wednesday or Friday night, and um, took he and his uh, best friend to dinner. We were down in St. Helena, we took him to dinner. And we got done with dinner, and uh, Andrew looked at his watch and said, well, we gotta go. And um, I said, well, what, what for? And his best friend goes, gotta go get our Jesus on. Meant that they needed to go up for uh, um, worship, student worship, the required worship, two nights a week, Wednesday and Friday night. So gotta go get our Jesus on. So I, I don't know why, but I couldn't help think of that when we were singing A Mighty Fortress, is that here in an Adventist church, we came this morning and we got our Luther on, right? So I guess now we can uh, put some Jesus on too. Um, so in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey has two chapters, two entire chapters on the Sermon on the Mount. The second one, he actually calls it a sermon of offense. It's an offensive sermon. See, I began last week with comparing our months of study with the outside voice of the parables. The outside voice that's supposed to appeal to the ones we want to reach with the gospel, those ones on the outside, those that we're going unto all the world to reach. It's supposed to appeal to them. The good news of Jesus' love. We're supposed to make it understandable for them, that they can see it, that they can understand it, so that they can make a decision as to whether or not they want to worship this God. While the Sermon on the Mount, though, would be his inside voice. He changes voices when he gets around just his disciples. He doesn't use parables so much anymore. He speaks to them in a, in a much more direct manner. It would be his inside voice because those are proclaimed believers and followers who are on the inside with him. We're in the room. We're in the upper room. We're by ourselves on the side of the mountain. Everyone else is down the mountain. They haven't got up there yet. He speaks to them saying. So we're the ones on the inside. Uh, do we know? Do we know the good news? Can we hear it? when it's told to us in the inside voice. So that's the question that we ask when it comes. Do we know it? Uh, if we know, do we really know? And I think that a good way to be able to know is whether or not you find it offensive. See, because there is a group of people who find the Sermon on the Mount offensive. They may be in the room. They may not be in the room. They may be on the inside, they may be on the outside. But when Jesus speaks in that voice, do you find it offensive? Jesus clearly tells us that he invites those who don't belong and offers them, us, the kingdom in spite of our sins. And then actually, in a way, it takes the kingdom away from those who think they belong because they either believe they're no longer sinners or they believe that they're sinners, but not just, as, just not as bad as others. These are the people that find the sermon offensive. These are the people that find Jesus' mission offensive. The sermon's offense is that it short circuits whenever we want to be self-righteous. 
Whenever we want credit for our righteousness, whenever we who use the standard of the law as our righteousness by keeping it, we want credit for that. We believe that that's actually righteousness. So would we want to be self-righteous? Unfortunately, it treats others accordingly. See, the section we found ourselves in last week was, you've heard it said, you've heard it written, you have read in your Bibles that it says this, the law and the commentary on how to live it. The law when it was first given and the thousands of years that God's people has proclaimed that this is how you live. You have heard it said. But I say to you, that language, that inside voice, That's designed to prevent us from being and becoming self-righteous because of our ability to observe and keep the law, our old definition of righteousness. Righteousness has to be beyond the letter. We could be perfect at it and still fall woefully short of what Christ has in mind for us, of what righteousness is. Remember, the outside voice already exposed us to the world we want to reach. He began one of the parables by saying, he told this parable for all who claimed that they were righteous, all who felt that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. He wrote a parable in the outside voice just for them, just for the self-righteous. So this section is all about our relationship to the law, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, the last section of chapter five in Matthew. And it's there so that we can see how to be able to apply the law in the only arena that righteousness matters to God. Does God feel that we... uh, Does God want you to have righteousness? Does he want us to be right with him and right with each other? There's only one arena in which he even cares that righteousness is lived out, and that's how we treat other people. It really doesn't matter if we're all by ourselves. We don't have anything to proclaim if we're by ourselves. See, I can can be completely by myself, but if I'm trying to live love, first I've got to have somebody with me or around me or within my area of influence at least that I can love. Until that, I can't be like God. Until that, I can't live that righteousness out. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He said that the second one was as important as the first. The only reason it's second is because Apparently, he lives by the law of physics, that no two things can occupy the same space at the same time. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you think about it, this section of the sermon is how to be able to live with others, specifically to live with others on the inside. This is how we treat people in church. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder But I say to you, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, you can't even lust in your heart. This is how the church is supposed to treat people within her midst. This is the inside voice. So Jesus continues with a personal worship that's not too familiar. 
Not too familiar, this next section that we're gonna go to. It isn't familiar to us because we don't have much, we don't have much of a modern context for it. In other words, our branch of Protestantism, our branch of Christianity, never really picked this up. And that's this. Again, you've heard it said of those of ancient times. So not just the law, not just what is written, but also everyone that's lived in ancient times trying to live this out. You've heard it said of those in ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the what? The vows that you've made to the Lord. Vows or oaths. We don't have within our uh, branch of Adventism, within our branch of Protestantism, we don't have a heck of a lot where we live out a proclaimed oath. It isn't part of our practice, but it certainly was in Jesus' day, and it certainly is in biblical times. The theologians will say that the oaths are specific acts of obedience over a specific amount of time to ask God for a result in return. I'm going to live a particular way. I'm going to do something in particular, Lord, for the next three weeks. If I do that, I would like you to do this. That's what they are. We have a few ancient examples. The first time that the word in Hebrew for vow or oath is used is in Genesis 28, and it's used by uh, describing Jacob. Jacob made a vow saying, if God remains with me, this is after he has the dream out in the wilderness, Jacob's ladder, this is, this is the morning after. Jacob made a what? He made a vow saying, if God remains with me, if he protects me on this journey that I'm making, gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear, if I return safe to my father's house, the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I set up as a pillar, shall be God's house abode. And all of that you give me, I then will pay my tithe. That's what he said. He took a what? He took a vow. He took an oath. In Judges is an extreme one that didn't work out so well. Jephthah made the following vow to the Lord. If you deliver the Ammonites into my hand. So he's asking for a military victory over the Ammonites. Then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me on my safe return from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and and shall be offered by me as a burnt offering. I'll make a sacrifice to you, Lord, of whatever comes out of my house first if you give me victory over the Ammonites. Didn't turn out too well for Jephthah because the first thing that came to greet him was his daughter. But he kept his vow. So we see how serious that it is to take a vow like that. The one that we may be more familiar with is what we call the Nazarite vow. And we're familiar with it because Samson's parents put them under a Nazarite vow. The interesting thing about when you read about the Nazarite vow in number six, we don't know really why they're doing it. It just says a special time of dedication before the Lord. It's a specific time of dedication. No alcohol. In fact, nothing that comes from grapes. No alcohol and no grape juice. No haircuts, and make sure you don't touch a dead body. 
do that for a specific uh, area of time, and then you come and there's a whole ceremony that's done by the priest, and you have to bring a free will offering and a votive offering or an oath, and then your oath is done, the Nazarite vow. That's all we know about it. It's just a special time of dedication. So they were common enough in the Old Testament. I would say natural enough. That's, that's the way that I put it. When, when, when the way to worship God is set up after Sinai, it seems to me that this would just be a natural thing. It would be a natural thing for people to do. Now, you know me, I'm cynical, okay? And my cynicism says that it would be a natural thing because people are trying to look good in this worship of God. So if I feel things aren't going very well, then what I do is stand up and proclaim, I'm gonna make a vow, I'm going to live in a particular way, watch me. So it's natural, it happens. People do it, apparently. Jacob, Jephthah, anybody wanting to be a Nazarite? By the way, Nazarite has nothing to do with Nazarene. Uh, it's a completely, completely different word. Okay, so it's, um, it's interesting. It is natural enough that the law addresses guidelines for vows three times, okay? Leviticus 19.12, this is the one that Jesus is quoting for us in, in uh, our sermon today. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of the Lord your God. Don't swear falsely. That should be obvious. If you're going to make a vow and at the end of it you say, I swear to God, then you better what? It better be right. It better be truthful. And notice it gives you permission to. You can, don't swear falsely by my name, but you can swear by my name. Swear to God. I always love that line. I'm an atheist. Really? Swear to God. Don't swear falsely, it says. Numbers 30 says this. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then Deuteronomy says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, don't postpone it. Fulfilling it for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you would incur guilt. Whatever your lips utter, you must diligently perform just as you freely vowed to the Lord your God with your own mouth. By the way, anytime you make a free will offering to the Lord, it could be considered as a vow. It's the same word in Old Testament language, in the cultic language, uh, the, the system of the temple and sacrifice. So in a way, anytime we make an offering, we're making an oath. If we make the oath, what does the law say we need to do? Do it, Okay? Every oath that they're talking about is our Nike slogan, just do it. If you say it, you're gonna have to what? Do it, and do it when? Do it now. Don't postpone it, or you will incur wrath. Do it, just do it. The law says do it. In the New Testament, looking at the word, the simple word used as vows, it gets a more... I'm not sure how to put it, but I would say glaring and also say more graphic. It hits home with us more. Okay. Do you remember the story of uh, 
John the Baptist being imprisoned by Herod. And the reason that he imprisons him is because his wife is tired of John the Baptist proclaiming that their marriage is unlawful. So his wife gets Herod to throw John into prison. Herod didn't want to do it, did he? Herod liked him. He liked being around him. He liked what he had to say. She didn't, though. So he's in prison. Herod throws a party, and his daughter performs a dance that truly pleases Herod. Truly pleases him. And he can tell that it pleases everyone else. So in front of everybody, he makes an oath. He tells Salome, half my kingdom I will give to you. I'll give even up to that, whatever you request. He made an oath to give her whatever she wanted. And of course, Salome asks Herodias, and she says what? I want the head of John the Baptist. And it said the king was deeply grieved out of regard for his what? For his oath and the guests, he did not want to refuse it. What does the law say about your oaths? Keep them. When? Now. He did what the law said. He did what the law said. And of course, in Matthew 26, the one time that it's used, at least the third time that it's used by this guy... Peter begins to curse, and he swore a what? He swore an oath, saying, I do not know the man. And at that moment, the cock crowed. Herod and Peter were both using what? Oaths. See, the emphasis seems to have sealed the deal. Using an oath means that it kind of is a way of saying, you know what, I really mean it, okay? I really, truly mean it. If you punctuate it with an oath, it means that you really do. You, if you swear by something or someone, it gave it an emphasis. Also, it was a way to shut them up, okay? It was a way to, to, to say, that's it, that's done. This is what seems to be Jesus' focus or concern as he addresses our oaths, if you will. He says, don't swear at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, because I'm telling you, that's what happened. Peter swore to God is what he did. I don't know the exact words, but it's what he did. He swore by something greater than him. He either swore by heaven, or he swore by the throne that God sits on, or he swore by God himself. Jesus says, don't what? Don't do it. It's the throne of God. Or by the earth, I'm sorry, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your own head either, for you cannot make one hair white or what? Or black. He's going after that emphasis. He's going after whatever it is you're swearing by. Note, did he say don't make vows? Did he say don't make oaths? He said no. Quit trying to make them sound more important than they are. He's going after that emphasis. See, seems folks, like I said, they used it in order to end an argument. Let your word be yes or no, 
Anything more than this comes from where? Comes from the evil one. Let it be without emphasis. If you're gonna make an oath and, and, and uh, you're, you're one of my disciples, you don't need anything more. That becomes evil. It's like I said, you could swear by a number of things, but the reason he's saying that the reason that you are swearing by all these things is because so many of you are liars. In fact, if you make it sound important enough, you don't even have to keep it anymore. It seems to me that the context of those believe that they are righteous by a letter of the law of righteousness, this oath swearing is a way to look righteous without having to what? Without actually having to be righteous. You say the right thing at the right time to the right group of people and you say it loud enough, you don't have to do anything else, do you? They'll consider you what? Right. It shuts people up. It ends their arguments. One of my favorite uses of the word oath is in the book of Hebrews. And it says in, in 16, verse, uh, six, chapter 6, verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves. That's what Hebrews is saying. If you're gonna swear, you need to swear by someone greater than themselves. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what you do. That's what men do is, is, is what he's saying. That's what humans do. When you swear, you swear by something greater than yourself. Why? Because you want it to have impact. You may even want to lie about it, but you still want it to sound good and look good. He says, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. If you make the emphasis loud enough and more important enough, it ends every dispute. We could tell Mel, Mel, I vow that I'm going to make this contribution to the church budget. Free will offering, by the way, church budget. It is free will, okay? I vow to make it. Mel says, I don't believe you. You need to pay it now. Mel is being Jesus to me. Pay it now. Don't wait. Pay it now. Mel, I'm going to pay it back. Mel says, I still don't believe you. Mel, I swear to God. Mel goes, oh, okay. I can't do nothing with that, right? See, I make it loud enough, and Mel may even forget about it. And if he forgets about it, then I can forget about it too. It ends every what? It ends every dispute. See, but Jesus attacks this idea of being able to appear righteous by an oath. Hebrews does too. Swearing by something greater than yourself. Consider this, earlier in the chapter he says this. He said, when God made a promise, by the way, God makes oaths too. He made an oath to every patriarch in which he gave the covenant. The covenant is an oath to you and me. God makes oaths, but guess what? He doesn't have anybody greater to swear by. Kind of a bummer for God, huh? When God made a promise to Abraham because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore what? He swore by himself. In the name of me, Abraham, I'll keep my covenant with you. Abraham, the covenant, that started this whole thing. This is the whole ball of wax. A people who are to live this covenant out. The laws, the righteousness, who belongs, who doesn't. 
See, Paul, who used to be Saul, believed that what pleased God was to live a righteousness based on the letter of the law. After all, it was God's law, so that's what I strive to do. Saul woke up every day striving to keep the law perfectly. By the way, he succeeded every day. That's what he told you. If you asked him his pedigree, that's exactly what he would tell you. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as unto the law, perfect. That was me. That was Saul. But Saul became Paul when it was revealed to him what righteousness really was. Actually, when it was revealed to him who righteousness really was. You're a child of Abraham, Paul concludes after this, not because you're obedient to the law, in other words, getting circumcised and, and, and going beyond that. You are a child of Abraham because you have Abraham's faith. Not because you have his mark, his circumcision, but because you have his faith. When he gave the covenant to Abraham, he said this. He brought him outside, look toward heaven, and count the stars. By the way, he's even telling Abraham, there is nobody I can swear by greater than this. I'm going to take the covenant all the way to heaven. It's not bound by anything. He brought him outside, look toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said, so shall your descendants be. Who is it that belongs in this new family of God? Who is it that be, becomes children of Abraham, sons of Abraham? Whoever descends from him. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as what? as righteousness. You'll note that at this time in Genesis 15, he's got absolutely no reason to believe what God said. None whatsoever. Abraham's 100 years old and his wife is 90. Guess how many kids they have? None. He has absolutely no reason to believe God. God's given him no evidence that he's going to come through with this. By the way, after he promises all these descendants, he, he still waits, what, 13 years? Till Abram finally goes back to him and says, you know what? You're still not coming through. This is even after God reckoned him as righteous because Abram decided to have what? To have faith. By the way, when he was reckoned as righteous, he hadn't become circumcised yet either. He did nothing. He didn't take one step towards God in obedience. All he did was believe God when he said, one day you'll have a son who will number into descendants you won't even be able to count. It's his faith. And according to Paul, if we believe in Jesus, that's the faith we had. You and I are children of Abraham because we have Abraham's faith not because we have his mark or his obedience. Amen? Nobody in prayer meeting said amen. We've been studying this for a year now, and nobody said amen. Wow. Anyway, we'll keep going in Galatians, by the way. Prayer meeting this week. Come and join us. But righteousness by faith, 
Righteousness for believing in Christ. Righteousness because Jesus loves us so that all he wants for us is to be right with God. See, a little later in Hebrews, after that chapter, he says, unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. He offers himself once. You have faith in that. Your atonement and your perfection and your righteousness is complete because you have the same faith that Abraham did when God told him that he would give him the covenant. Faith in that, once and for all. Perfection can't come in the flesh by the works of the law. We can keep the law perfectly, and yet we fall so far short of perfection. It isn't who we are. See, Paul planted a church in Galatia built completely on the basic teachings exhibited here. He taught them Christ. He gave them the spirit of adoption on how to be a child of God. Then a group of other people came in after Paul did and convinced them that they needed to be children of Abraham, which by the way is true. We have to be children of Abraham in order to be saved. We have to be children of Abraham in order to be in God's family. But you don't do it by getting circumcised. They told that church that you do it by getting circumcised. We do it now by completing our journey in the flesh. We will keep God's laws from here on out. And everybody in prayer meeting, when Paul heard about this, was he pleased or was he upset? He's pretty hacked, wasn't he? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing in what you heard? Paul testified at the Council of Jerusalem that all these Gentiles needed to hear was that Christ loved them, died for them, and gave them righteousness. And when they believed that, they said the Holy Spirit fell upon them. By the way, it ended the debate as to whether or not you had to be circumcised circumcised. When they heard that the Holy Spirit was falling on the Gentiles, the same way that it had fallen on all the Jews when it came to be believers in Christ, they said, that's it then. They don't have to be circumcised to be children of Abraham. They just have to believe. We're children of Abraham, saved, belong in his eternal family because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believed would not perish but have everlasting life. That's how we become children of Abraham. By the way, he concludes in Galatians, thanks to Christ, we're all children of Abraham. Are you so foolish? Having started with the spirit, you're now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Well, then God does supply you with the Spirit, work miracles among you by doing works of the law or by you believing what you heard. Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. That's how he explains it to him. 
One commentator puts it this way, for Paul, the gospel of Christ crucified so completely rules out any other supposed means of being righteous before God that he finds it utterly incomprehensible for anyone who had once embraced such a gospel to ever think of supplementing it in any way by works of the law. The Galatians recognized neither the depth of human weakness nor the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. Paul was so clear, so confident. He said, I did it so clearly, it was as if you were at Calvary yourself. You wouldn't have gotten a clearer picture had you had been at Calvary yourself. See, Paul argued, if you're gonna go in on this, you're gonna go in it all the way. If you're gonna keep some of the law, you're gonna have to keep how much of it? All of it. He said, and I was there. Saul kept all of it perfectly every day, and I was still lost. Utterly, absolutely lost, he said. I could keep it perfectly. Here's why. Because I could keep the law perfectly, never even fracture a jot or a tittle of it, keep it perfectly. But I could murder men, women, and children for simply believing that that little country rabbi from Galilee was the Messiah. I could murder them and think that I was pleasing God. That's where my perfection got me. That's where my works of the law got me. It got me nowhere. He proves the point by the end of the book. By the end of the book, he's going to prove the point because he's going to take what it means to keep the law perfectly and compare it then to what it means to live the fruits of the Spirit if the Holy Spirit is in you if you're a person of faith. So towards the end, he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not what? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're with us in prayer meeting, I put these in two lists. Sins of license, I call these religious sins. Why do I call these really bad sins religious sins? It's because religious people are the, are the only ones that believe that they can keep them. Religious people think that if they stay away from these, that makes them religious. That makes them right. Actually, it only makes them religious. It doesn't make them right, does it? Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, carousing. Those are obvious. As a matter of fact, you'll find a lot of people who don't even believe in God who thinks those are sins. Right? There are a ton of people out there who can stay away from those. And they are not within 10 miles of believing in God or wanting a relationship with him. A religious person, a self-righteous person, this is the list that they go to. That's the one. The next one is the irreligious one. I call it irreligious because the people that think that they keep these perfectly uh, just ignore these. These are sins of the heart. As a matter of fact, the sins of the heart is what leads to those over there. Enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels. Just like Jesus saying, You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say to you, don't even be angry. We get smaller and smaller every time he opens his mouth, don't we? 
That's what Paul is doing here. This is his version of you've heard it said, but I say to you. You think you got this knocked? Just because you haven't slept with another woman, you think you've got it knocked? What about the lust in your heart? See, these are sins of the heart. Self-righteousness covers these up. As a matter of fact, self-righteousness looks at these and condones them. Because I will tell you, somebody who's perfect at this can be pretty mean. And when they're mean to other people who don't think they're keeping it as perfect as they are, they cause quite a bit of jealousy and strife and enmities. If you haven't experienced it, come to a board meeting with me sometime. Not in this church, not in this church. In a church in another conference that nobody knows anything about. In case we didn't notice, like I said, this is what Jesus was saying last week, wasn't he? You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. We remember this from the inside voice. This is what happens in the church. What happens to the church when somebody uh, really falls into what we think is serious sin? Breaking one of those on that left list. What happens then? What should happen, by the way? What should a church member be able to do with somebody like that? First of all, walk them where? Walk them to the foot of Jesus. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, those of us on the inside who've avoided the violation of that letter, we may find that offensive, that Jesus would forgive that. If I find that offensive, now I have my answer to my question. Is that really all there should be? Confess, be forgiven, be what? Be cleansed. How much? All unrighteousness. And then it's interesting, but I say to you, he says, anyone who even lusts, anyone who has lust in their heart, it hit me after the sermon last week, it hit me, and that's why I wanted to revisit just a little bit. Jesus has the adulterer's back. See, if the adulterer is going to uh, live a forgiven life, if he's going to come to Christ, if he's gonna do what Christ asked him to do and, be, and confess and be forgiven and be clean, then unfortunately, he needs protection in the church because there are people in the church that are offended by that kind of grace. And they certainly won't give it to him. So what he's actually saying is, I got your back against the self-righteous people. I understand what happened. I understand what you did. I love you, my son, and it's gonna be a hard road to hoe in this church, but I got your back. Because if anybody wants to bring this up again, if anybody wants to point this out again, I'll point out to them, what about the lust in their heart? And if they tell you they've got no lust in their heart, then they don't have, you don't have to worry about it. They're lying. If I say that I have no sin, I call God a liar because I am a liar. Amen? 
I've got their back. Jesus has the sinner's back. The self-righteous people don't have that protection. First of all, they don't think they need it. And second of all, they're the ones doing the attacking. They're the ones telling you that you don't belong because you messed up big time. In fact, after the fruits of the Spirit, the beginning of the chapter, he'll say this. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who've received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Now, a congregation that you used to be a member of may be able to pull that off gently, but not to the ones I ever did. I don't believe that disfellowshipping somebody is a gentle act, but that's just me. To take somebody at the lowest time of their life and tell them they no longer belong in the church, I don't know. And by the way, the only way that we can come to terms with this is to be able to listen to the inside voice, and that's what I'm talking about. What does the inside voice sound like to you? Is it offending you? Or is it opening us up to possibilities of being able to love as we have been loved? Tolstoy, in his book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, says this about religious systems. They tend to promote external rules. Judaism did so, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. But Jesus introduced a different approach by refusing to define a set of external rules which his followers could then abide by with a sense of self-righteousness. Tolstoy said that Jesus short-circuited all of that, and that's what I'm saying. The Sermon on the Mount short-circuits you and I trying to attempt to become righteous by keeping the law. The test of observance of external religious teachings is whether or not our conduct conforms with their decrees. Observe the Sabbath, get circumcised, tithe. Such conformity is indeed possible. The test of observance of Christ's teachings, though, is our consciousness of our failure to attain ideal perfection. When we're faced with Jesus saying, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, the first thing that comes to a Christian's mind is my inability to do so and never be able to do so. The test of observance of Christ's teachings is our consciousness of our failure to attain an ideal perfection. The degree which we draw near this perfection cannot be seen. All we can see is the extent of our deviation. Ellen White would agree. She put once, she said, you know, the closer I come to God, the more I feel like a fetid swamp against a pristine blue glacier. A man who professes an external law is like someone standing in the light of a lantern fixed to a post. It's light all around him, but there is nowhere further for him to walk. A man who professes the teaching of Christ is like a man carrying a lantern before him on a long, long pole. The light is ever in front of him, always lighting up fresh ground, always encouraging him to walk further. 
making oaths, swearing by things greater than ourselves, that's the same thing. Today, like I said, all you have to do to be righteous to a particular group of people is come down on one particular side of an issue here or there. Say it loud enough, say it often enough, and people will think you're righteous and they will leave you alone. And in a couple of weeks, we'll take a look at what Jesus says about that. If you're seeking approval of people, if that's what you're in it for, if you're in it to look good instead of being good, then he says, congratulations, you have your reward. You will always have an audience applaud you for your self-righteousness. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be on the inside, we have to come up with a different standard. Like I said, all we have to do now is come down on a particular issue, condemn a particular culture, condemn a particular group of people, claim that they absolutely don't belong in the fellowship of Christ, and we will have an audience. We will have people believe that we are righteous. Jesus says, congratulations, you have your reward. But don't expect my Father to reward you. That's in a couple of weeks we're coming to that. It looks good. It looks righteous. So I'll ask you the question that I asked at the very beginning. Ask yourself, who is it here that finds this offensive? Which part do you find offensive? If we find his love and his grace offensive, then we'll know we're not listening with our inside voice. If we love as those, if we love everyone as we've been loved, then guess what? <laughs> You'll be found offensive by those people. Jesus said, if they did it to me, they're gonna do it to you. So if you feel persecuted, I look at the group that's persecuting me. If I'm being persecuted by the right group, then I'm in the right place. I used to gauge <laughs> one particular place. I used to gauge if this one particular faction, by the way, faction, and that's exactly what I'll call it in the works of the flesh issue, this one particular faction, if they were disagreeing with me, I knew I was right. I wish I had discovered that about five years before that. My time there would have been a heck of a lot easier, but I finally was able to walk away with that. When God made a promise to Abraham because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I'll surely bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently endured, endured obtained the promise. Human beings, of course, swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation puts an end to all dispute. In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath. See, but the oath was his because he had no greater authority to swear by. So that through two unchangeable things in which it's possible that God would prove false who we've taken refuge, might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope that is set before us. We just don't settle for being right. Saturday's the right day to worship on. It's the seventh day. We don't do any work. Fourth commandment says so. But we don't do that simply because it's right. 
And we especially shouldn't do it because it makes us righter than a whole bunch of other people who we think are worshiping on the wrong day. Jesus said, your oaths, yes, yes, no, no. Jesus said, you're better than that. And you don't need an oath to make you sound like that. You don't need an oath to make you look like that. We take the hard road to love as we've been loved. We don't settle for being just right. We look to seize the hope. When we seize the hope, we become the hope. If we become the hope, then we can give it. But it also means we have to be able to give it to everybody that he would give it to. And how many people is that? Are we offended by the inside voice? Or are we encouraged? Thank you for hanging in there with me. We'll keep on spending some time inside with Jesus. And there isn't anything better than to be doing it inside with you. Music